there's a big difference between, I think, saying you would have had a mortgage-free house worth £500,000, but you're now going to have a mortgage-free house worth £450,000 because um, I'm not going to give you all the money that you owe your lawyers because of all this litigation misconduct or I'm going to make a cost order, versus you now cannot buy a house at all. So I think the reality is that the court will still need to look at, as Rule 28 requires, um, all of the surrounding circumstances, including the impact on each party and on the children, in order to decide whether to make a cost order and if so, what amount. Welcome to the Resolution podcast. Today we are joined by Judge Reardon and Laura Moyes from 1KBW. And before we launch into our topic, which is costs this month, I'd ask you each to introduce yourself. Judge, could we ask you to introduce yourself first? Sure. I'm Madeleine Reardon. I'm a circuit judge. Um, I sit mostly at the East London Family Court. So uh, when I'm there, most of my work is in children cases, but I also do some sittings at the Central Family Court in the Financial Remedies Court. Thank you. And Laura? Hi, Anita. Um, I'm Laura Moyes. I'm a barrister at One King's Bench Walk. Um, I'm primarily a financial remedy specialist, but I also practice in some private law children cases as well. Um, I sit as a recorder in financial remedies court at the CSE. And it's fair to say that you two have known each other for a very long time. And shared a room. <laughs> and I'm sitting in that room right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the colour. We chose the colour together very carefully and then I wasn't in it for very long. Um, so I missed that room. <laughs> very nice room. Laura, you better share what you said about the size of the room before we can carry on. <laughs> um, I think it's fair to say that this room used to be some sort of cupboard for chambers, which they then turned into a room. Um, and Madeline was kind enough to share that room with me but it's really yeah. one-person room. Very fun it was too. <laughs> we had a good time. <laughs> All right, well, maybe we'll get to those stories later. All right, so we're, we're discussing um, costs, uh, obviously, and we want to look at costs in financial remedy cases and in private law children. And we hope you can both help us with each of those topics. But before we do, I wanted to ask both of you, really, what your perception is of costs in the family court these days. And perhaps if we came to you first, Judge, is am I right in saying that costs orders are being applied for more? And does it follow, therefore, they're being made more? And could we look at that both in respect of Children Act cases and, and financial remedy? Yeah, I think the short answer to both of those questions is yes. Money cases, obviously, there is quite a bit of um, recent authority explicitly encouraging costs orders. I'm sure we're going to talk about that later on, the amendments to the practice direction and so on. So that inevitably has led to more applications being made. I think the interesting thing really is the, the children cases, because it they don't have the same sort of framework, the rules that apply are different the approach is different but I think and this is only this is no more than a uh, you know sort of anecdotal bit of guesswork but I think I'm getting more applications for cost orders or at least people being a bit more aware of the costs they're spending and that I think is a good thing. There's also the whole developing field isn't there of legal services orders or A&A orders in schedule one cases which seems again to me anecdotally and from experience to be something that is is increasing hugely in terms of the numbers of applications and the numbers of orders that are being made. Maybe would, would it be helpful if you talked us through those a little bit, both in terms of, you know, what they're designed to achieve and, and, and how they're working in practice? When I was having a look at this for the purpose of this podcast, I did think that there's a tension between the authorities relating to legal services payment orders and the direction of travel of the recent case law in relation to costs orders. And the reason I say that is because I think that, again, perhaps anecdotally, most judges faced with a legal services payment order application, where the primary objective behind that application is to ensure that the applicant is able to secure legal representation for the proceedings, is likely to be thinking, 
we need equality of arms. It's better that I have a represented person than an unrepresented person. And while we know that as part of the order for an equal services payment order, you have to give an undertaking in respect of repayment of parts or all of that funding order, if at the conclusion of the proceedings, the court considers that it's appropriate that, that you do so. How many cases, and certainly I've never seen one, do judges claw back at the end of the proceedings the money that has been paid out by way of legal services payment order? Whereas when you're looking at costs owed to your solicitors as a debt at the conclusion of financial remedy proceedings now, the law is quite clear that judges have to be careful in not simply slicing from the top of the assets debts that are referable to somebody's outstanding legal fees without considering whether or not they would have made a costs order because of the risk of that outstanding debt being a backdoor costs order if you allow somebody uh, an amount of money substantially in, in excess of what their needs are otherwise assessed as in order to meet that costs debt. Um, and so people, it seems to me, from the way that case law is developing, are likely to be in a better position if they have secured a legal services payment order than if they have borrowed from friends and family or taken out a commercial debt in order to fund their solicitors, or indeed if they just haven't paid their solicitors and have outstanding orders for payment at the end of the proceedings. And I think we might need to be concerned about that. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I'm not sure I completely agree with you. I I sort of feel, and maybe this is just deluding myself, that I exercise my discretion in, entirely in line with the authorities every single occasion. But I don't feel like the existence of a LASPO somewhere along the way, if it, if it had been made, would make much of a difference if I was looking at costs at the end of it. I mean, I appreciate, yes, in real terms, the money's been paid over, then there's an extra hurdle to get over if you're thinking about paying some of it back. But as you say, you you tend to look, you, yeah, you, you do look more at if there is a debt, the nature of that debt. And yes, you're right about the the friends and family option being a bit problematic when it comes to everything shaking down at the end of the case but with a commercial loan on the other at the other end of the spectrum the dominant feature of that is going to be the fact that that really needs to get paid back as soon as possible almost regardless isn't it so there are a lot of factors in play at the end of it um and i think that we manage it reasonably well so that we make the last orders when they are needed and in line with the authorities that tell us how to deal with them but still manage to deal with costs properly at the end of the case so when you're looking at LASPO applications, first of all, in respect of financial remedy, I think Simon was was making a point about the fact that currently litigation funders, the, the interest rates have got even worse, haven't they? What's what's the current cost of borrowing from a litigation funder, Simon? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's it, last I knew is at 16 percent. But I mean, the cost of borrowing has gone up significantly in the last few months so I wouldn't be surprised if it was higher. Um, I think it might be a little higher I think I've I've seen 18 I think somewhere. Yeah and I think also people are leaving seem to be leaving the market don't they? Yeah well novel passes. Yeah I was just wondering whether whether you think the two of you think that that means that the the LSPO is going to become the default um, option really in a way that possibly litigation loans were the default option until until recently and whether whether you would still expect um an applicant to jump through the hurdle of uh, you know applying for and being refused litigation funding if if the expense of it is so is so high is that a factor do you think i think it ought to be permissible to simply set out within your application your statement for an lspo what the current interest rate of a number of well-known lenders is, for example, because Mr Justice Mosson did say all, the, all those years ago in Rubin and Rubin that um, the, the, the necessity to look into alternative routes to secure legal representation didn't necessarily mean that you would have to take out um, a, a litigation loan at a high rate of interest and that um, really the court's got to look at all the circumstances in terms of what is actually available to you and how reasonable it is for you. Um, and I think that's something that it's important for solicitors preparing applications to remember because 
Um, I have got uh, applications for legal services payment orders coming up in the near future. Um, and in several of the cases that I deal with, it's, all, it's almost been seen as a mandatory hurdle to make an application for um, litigation funding. And I, I, my personal view is I don't think you have to go as far as to have formally applied. I think if you can just demonstrate that that would be a reasonable option for your client to take and explain that, that ought to be sufficient. There's something, isn't there? And I'm, this isn't going to be very useful to anyone because I can't remember the name of the case, but there was a another Moston case after Rubin on litigation funding where he says something like, well, if if it's going to be the payer's case that there should be a litigation loan in preference to LASPO, then the payer is going to have to, at some point along the line, swallow the interest on that. So maybe we ought to be, as interest rates rise, factoring that in and laying it out there and maybe saying something in the order about that being the basis on which it's made. I, mean, I, I agree also you have to be careful and not not prejudging cost issues at the end of the day. But if someone is running a case very clearly that the other side ought to be borrowing rather than uh, if there are cash flow issues or whatever it is, then maybe that's the, the choice you make that the interest on the loan uh, is the price you pay for having more cash flow to play with along the interim way. I guess on, on Laura's point, one, one problem with LSPOs is getting them isn't cheap in in and of itself, is it? If you actually have to, if, it, if, it, if it's contested, the, the, the demands for the information you have to put in your statement. And quite often there will have been months of toing and froing, possibly even before any court proceedings, which will have led to the, the LSPO applicant having run up debts. Um, I mean, as, as a matter of routine, should people expect to be able to recover those costs that they've spent up to that point, do you think? Well, they normally do, in my experience. Um, I mean, they're not, uh, they're, they're excluded cases, aren't they? They're not general rule cases. And there seems to me to be a, a reasonably soft affirming up starting point of um, getting your costs. I suppose the more interesting one, in a way, is if... Uh, if you're the person if you want I'm trying to avoid using wife and husband I just try to avoid gender stereotypes when I can but if you're the payee and you're the one seeking funding but uh, you pitch it too high and actually the other side's offer is reasonable where does the cost order go in that case how do you meet your cost order if the whole point of you being there is that you can't pay costs I don't think I've actually had that situation I can't think of a case where it's existed I'm not sure what I'd do in that situation that was my, my next question, because part, part of the process seems to be, and again, this, this feels like it's something that's being done in, increasingly, is the sort of the scrutiny of the applicant's costs budgeting going mm. forward, which can be pretty brutal once it actually works out. And, and usually it isn't the applicant, of course, who's <laughs> come up with the schedule of what it's likely to cost. It, it's her lawyer's. But nobody's subjecting the other party to that sort of scrutiny, are they? I think sometimes courts indirectly subject the other party to that scrutiny in that in the same way that if you were looking at an MPS budget or indeed an income budget at the conclusion of the procedure, you know, the final hearing, you may well look at the other side's budget in order to provide some sort of cross-check as to how reasonable the figures within that budget are. I do think that judges look at what both parties have spent and expect to incur, because ultimately what they're trying to do is achieve equality of arms. And it's a pretty rubbish point if you're responding to an LSPO application that the anticipated costs are completely disproportionate if in fact the costs that you intend to incur with your lawyers are broadly the same or even higher in some cases so I think there is an element of that I think from my own experience what is a problem is when somebody exceeds the amount that the court has awarded them for their LSPO and then makes another application for an LSPO Um, and I think there has been a reluctance to get into the detail on those second LSPO applications in relation to how reasonable it was for that person to have spent the money that was intended to take them further on in the proceedings. Um, and certainly in cases I have had as a practitioner that where that has happened, judges have still ordered further LSPOs in order to ensure that that person is funded. That must be very fact specific. I did, I can't think of um, having had something like that come in front of me but uh, I can 
quite see how it would make a difference if you were proactively bringing up an issue that um, maybe you didn't need to versus responding to something that the other side had done or an application that they had made. So, yes, I, I would hope that there is a reasonable amount of scrutiny, but ultimately I, I wouldn't want to say you, you should never get a, another go. Um, you might need it. Just on Simon's point about feeling that the costs allowed, that it, it can be sometimes feel like a bit of a brutal approach. I think that's probably right. And I think I wonder whether what we're doing there, going back to what we were talking about earlier about the need to avoid unfairness in the long term, if it's not going to be a case where any cost orders ultimately are made, whether we're building in a a sort of check on the reasonableness along the way and that's where it comes from whereas if you get to the end of the case and you make a costs order yes you assess and you look at reasonableness but I wonder whether the what comes across as a brutal approach is is effectively that because of the knowledge that it might not be a case where there would be a costs order ultimately then in fairness you are looking at a, a sort of baseline rather than something more generous than that I don't know that just struck me when you were talking Simon. Thank you. And what about LSPOs in children proceedings? I mean, we, we know you can't get litigation funding for, for children proceedings. You're incredibly unlikely to get public funding for children mm-hmm. proceedings. So, uh, again, I'm completely taking on board what you said, Judge, about, you know, we're here talking about the lucky minority, I guess, mm-hmm. where, where where somebody's able to afford one set of legal fees, never mind two. But in that context, are they something we're going to be seeing more of? And are other other considerations different from your perspective? Well, on one level, they're very similar. And I've, I have, despite what I said, I have done some and I've done a couple quite recently. On one level, they're very similar because, of course, the jurisprudence developed in parallel, didn't it? And those cases between about 2010 and whenever Section 22ZA came in, there were a handful of uh, Schedule 1 cases alongside the FR cases. So uh, the the provisions of Section 22ZA are modelled on all of those authorities, and there was a sort of consistent approach, which is still there, and that is the law. But there are some quite significant differences, one of them being the practical one that if you are doing this under Schedule 1, now you might be doing it as a sort of ANA application within existing financial remedy proceedings, if there happen to be existing financial remedy proceedings. But if there aren't, then you're likely to be doing it under Schedule 1. And of course, you've got the jurisdictional issues there where you're not, you can't make maintenance orders and you have to be quite careful. So you have to do it as lump sums and you need to think about how it's structured. But you've also got the, the sort of murkier aspects of children cases when it comes to merits in most money cases you basically know you're going to be dividing up a pot of money unless and unless the facts are really unusual it's not going to be the outcome that one person gets 100 percent and the other person gets zero so you've got a lot of scope to adjust for unfairness further down the line you don't have that at all in children act cases because you you've got two people who are generally financially separate and you don't have much or it can be hard to know where you are on the merits at an interim stage so although one of the factors that we are entitled to look at and should be looking at I think is is the merits of the application that's quite a soft factor in children cases and a lot of the authorities I think weight equality of arms over an intensive scrutiny of the merits of the applicant's position. So there are a couple as a Justice Cobb case called BE and something like that, we'll dig out the reference, but that in particular says quite strongly that, not quite irrespective of the merits, but once there's a legitimate issue to be tried and determined, there's really quite a strong Article 6 point in favour of equality of arms. So those, those, I think, are the major differences between those applications. They do make them then harder to harder to make, harder to predict the outcome of and uh, harder to deal with when you know you're you haven't got you won't have the opportunity almost certainly later on to redress any unfairness or imbalance. As well, the fact that the child, you know, it's the welfare of the child that's the paramount consideration and in all but the rarest of cases or exceptional cases, you don't have the child as a party to those proceedings and separately represented. There must be some particular benefit, I think, in children proceedings in ensuring that 
all aspects of the dispute are properly ventilated. And so I think perhaps the equality of arms point is even stronger because you've got a child's welfare and decision making in relation to a child without them necessarily having a separate voice within the proceedings. And so wanting to ensure that the the appropriate stones are turned, if I can put it that way, gives you the chance to make sure you've got everyone represented. Well, absolutely. And I remember doing one in practice where, uh, to, to put it um, politely, the merits were pretty sketchy uh, on the applicant side. And it was in front of Mr. Justice Bodie, who said, even if that is right, obviously not expressing a view about it, but even if that is right for exactly the reason you've just identified, Laura, and for what it's worth, I think the child was a party. But even so, um, the importance of having uh, proper representation all round to ensure that the right answer is reached in the difficult case has had quite a lot of prominence. What I'm saying is my client lost, but I, <laughs> I've got over it now. <laughs> for those who haven't done one of these, in other words, seeking an ANA order in, in welfare proceedings, so if you're in, in welfare as opposed to having started off in, in Schedule 1, the, the procedure is that you would be applying for a Schedule 1. Yeah, it can be a bit fiddly, yeah. You have to, and actually at the moment it's particularly fiddly because you have to go off and issue it and it goes through the portal and the automatic directions come out. And I've I've had these referred to me once or twice where I've had to kind of undo everything that's happened on the portal, take out the hearing that's listed at wherever it is, bring it in to me, join it up. It, it's not ideal. It's a bit fiddly, but it's just, yeah, one of those little um, quirks that we end up with when, as I say, I'm afraid these applications are pretty rare. So they yeah, they don't have a, a clear, easy path to follow. Whilst we're talking about Children Act um, cases, then, should we just bowl straight on and um, look at whether you are likely ever to get a costs order following interim hearings or interim applications in Children Act cases? Because I think we've covered it from the financial remedy perspective. And I suppose... There are two questions really here. There's one, whether you see costs orders being made in respect of litigation conduct or whether that's just incredibly rare. And the other, I suppose, is in relation to to fact-finding hearings. Mm. So should, should we come to you first, Judge, and then you chime in, Laura? Yeah, sure. I think, well, the, the good thing at the moment about Costs and Children Act cases is that there are only a couple of authorities you ever need to look at and the principles are set out there. So really, we, yes, and... Supreme Court in 2015 has got it all. That's pretty much says very rarely, but you can if you've got a discrete issue like a fact finding that then it might well be appropriate to award costs. The litigation conduct point is an interesting one. I can't remember. I don't think there's much in WS about that. It's become so much more live in financial remedy cases. Frankly, I think it's more important to keep a lid on litigation in children cases because the damage that it does is so horrific. So I would be quite up for an an extension of the approach to uh, litigation misconduct in financial remedies cases to Children Act cases. But I don't think at the moment, unless I've missed something, there's any authority specifically on that. And again, it's... It is because these cases are rare and uh, they tend to the ones who make a real mess of it tend to be the people who have a lot of money to play with anyway. And they realise, I think, the penny drops at some point along the line that arguing costs further and certainly appealing might not make either of them look terribly good. So there's been, there, has, there has been one appeal to the Court of Appeal on Costs and Children Act proceedings, but that was on quantum, I think, rather than on the principle of stuff. What about you, Laura? Have you, are you seeing cost orders made after fact-finding hearings? I've certainly had a few cases myself as an advocate um, where we've obtained cost orders after fact-finding hearings. I haven't in recent times had one at the end of a welfare hearing, save where it was a kind of extension of the issues that arose during the fact-finding hearing in that you, you had a litigant that was adopting unreasonable positions all the way through and it was quite clear I do think that there is an issue where you have, as lots of people do, parallel proceedings running in children and finances. And so there isn't simply the issue of the fact that you have incurred costs, 
but you have reduced the pot of money that is available on division within the financial remedy proceedings because of the litigation of the Children Act proceedings. Um, And technically, you could run a 252G conduct argument in relation to the costs of those other proceedings. But the difficulty I think that you would have is that because of the general rule of no orders to costs within the children proceedings, there's always going to be an argument back against you. Um, And this is what happened in the case of uh, Azami Mavatha, and I'll find you the reference, Anita, for your notes, where, of course, the argument goes that if you uh, were going to pursue arguments in relation to conduct within the children proceedings, you should have done it there and then, so the judge that was dealing with those issues could have determined them rather than, than left it hanging over to the financial remedy proceedings. I wonder whether or not you might want to put down a marker in cases where you want to raise this issue within the financial remedy proceedings at the conclusion of the Children Act proceedings and say something like, um, we're reserving our position in relation to costs. We think that 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 issue is better dealt with within financial remedy proceedings and we want some form of recycling the order to that effect or some correspondence to that effect. Trouble with that, though, is that you end up in in the place that they got to in Azami and so on, where what didn't they get into trouble because there'd been attempts in the financial remedy proceedings to sort of look back and consider the reasonableness of conduct in the children act proceedings and it's i can see the argument that it's difficult for a different judge who hasn't heard those proceedings to start expressing views about reasonableness of conduct yeah i mean it, it it's always going to be a possibility isn't it that the only way of doing fairness at the end of the day in the financial remedy proceedings and ensuring that you give proper regard to Section 25 particular needs is to pay off someone's costs, even when they've created those costs or or done something terrible in other proceedings. But yes, it's it's not so different, really, is it, from other forms of conduct that generally don't result in addbacks and adjustments because the the hurdle's quite high? Uh, I did attempt to run within some financial remedy proceedings a litigation conduct argument because there were parallel Family Law Act proceedings and Family Law Act proceedings had been brought by the other party within the um, financial remedy proceedings. And essentially what my client was saying was that she was a victim of domestic abuse and that he had brought those family proceedings, Family Law Act proceedings against her as a way of using litigation in order to put pressure on her within the financial remedy proceedings, because essentially he was exhausting her finances by constantly dragging her to court in in relation to satellite litigation. In the end, though, we got a costs order within the Family Law Act proceedings. And so we're not pursuing that anymore. We don't need to because we already got our costs. But I think there are cases like that where had that not been... For example, the financial remedy proceedings, uh, sorry, the family law proceedings not been resolved at the time of the financial remedy proceedings. I think it would have been open to the court to consider that behaviour because it was a pattern of it that followed through into the, the financial remedy proceedings as well. Or also potentially to look at whether or not as part of the needs budget, you need some money to be able to defend yourself within those other proceedings. Yeah. Nora, people's ears probably will have pricked up when you talked about a couple of cases where you got costs orders following fact-finding in, in children proceedings. Can you, can you talk us through that, perhaps? I mean, is that an element of costs following the event, or is it additional <coughs> misconduct, or is it something else? I think it is probably litigation misconduct in that in both of those cases... They weren't cases where the court simply found that allegations were not proven. They were cases where the court found that a particular litigant had actively lied to the court, had actively done things that were um, deception, completely contrary to um, behaving in an honest, appropriate way during those proceedings, um, and had also done things within those proceedings, like breaching orders and behave, I mean, bringing third parties into court hearings that shouldn't have been there and all, all sorts of things. So I think it's probably best characterised as litigation misconduct. And I think it may be harder 
to get costs after a fact-finding hearing on sort of pure costs follow the event grounds if the judge that heard those proceedings considered that they were finely balanced in terms of the evidence that they heard. And I think that that inevitably may play a part in the judge's mind when they're dealing with the costs application, if they just weren't sure about some of the evidence and have ended up not making a finding. Yeah, well, that would fit with the reported authorities, wouldn't it? Because I can't remember which way around they are, the WeT and WeJ, but I think one of them is allegations made and not found proved, but not only not found proved, found to be fabricated. And the other one is unreasonably defending yourself against allegations that were blindingly obviously true. So that very much is in line with those two authorities on that point. And I think the unreasonably defending yourself fits quite neatly with the authorities in financial remedy proceedings that emphasise the need to openly negotiate reasonably at an early stage. And so if you know if you've if you've had a, a schedule of allegations served on you months before and you choose to just ignore it or to reply and say none of it happened and then it transpires that actually the weight of the evidence was against you and you should have known from an early stage. Yeah, because as the authorities say you, you know whether you did it or you didn't um and you should have replied honestly yeah yeah so th- this isn't the sort of warring parents who both are describing the same thing and talking about how unreasonable the other person is this is like something more isn't it yeah. that you know we're talking about more more serious and obvious incidents where there's a the x has happened or or, yeah. or it hasn't happened. i do wonder about that though because um I'm not sure how much of an incentive in those sorts of cases where it's about abusive behaviour, how much of an incentive a, the threat of a costs order would be. Frankly, is someone going to say, well, you know, I would otherwise I'll challenge these allegations of coercive and controlling behaviour, but I'm a bit worried about costs order, so I think I'll admit them. It just doesn't seem to me very realistic. So, yeah, thinking about it, I mean, that, that is the scenario where that, that is the justification for costs, but... I'm not sure if we're looking again, if we're looking at trying to control litigation, I'm not terribly hopeful about uh, controlling fact findings through costs orders. Let's get into it then. Just so we're clear, what was the change in the practice direction in respect of costs in financial remedy proceedings? There is greater emphasis, I think, on the circumstances within Rule 28 of the Family Procedure Rules when you're dealing with the general rule of no order for costs. So in other words, the general rule that each party's each party will pay for their own lawyers at the end of the proceedings. That the exceptions to that rule with regards to litigation conduct and all the things that you might look at in deciding whether to make an order for costs, there is a real emphasis firstly on behaving reasonably within the proceedings in terms of making proposals at the right time adopting appropriate forms of alternative dispute resolution, being constructive, not taking bad points, you know, not running a case to the nth degree that is not going to make any difference to the outcome in terms of financial um, division between the parties. Uh, but also a clarification that whereas perhaps we had thought that if you have a case where you are dealing with simply the party's needs and trying to make a small pot divide in order to provide for two homes and and for the children's welfare, that you were in many ways immune from a costs order, that in fact that that is not the case and the court uh, will not hesitate in making costs orders, even in cases where that means that your assessed needs cannot be met. So the concern previously, and I think it's what led to Calder Bank offers disappearing in the first place, was that judges would go through a careful analysis of deciding what award met everybody's needs. And that if you then made a costs order after you had gone through that process, you would effectively unsettle the process that you had made uh, because you'd end up in a situation where somebody was then having to use some of their needs-based award in order to pay the costs to the other person and then it would would, uh, unravel. But um, the authorities now make clear that even if you have got a cost uh, needs case, the courts can make orders for costs. Um, And I think that the direction of travel is very much to send a message in relation to costs. So even if the costs order that the court makes is relatively modest, 
a thousand pounds, two thousand pounds, a small proportion of the other person's legal fees. It is designed to ensure that people litigate responsibly and reasonably because it is in everybody's interest, including the courts, as I said at the outset, dealing with huge backlog of cases to get people to sort their cases out without incurring significant amounts of money. I think, though, it'll be interesting to see how this filters down into, ironically, the needs-based cases, because as we all know in family law, there are needs and there are needs. And even the decisions dealing with needs still interpret needs in a way that is in excess of what I think most members of the public would consider to be a modest or a small asset case. Um, There's a big difference between, I think, saying you would have had a mortgage-free house worth £500,000, but you're now going to have a mortgage-free house worth £450,000 because um, I'm not going to give you all of the money that you owe your lawyers because of your litigation misconduct or I'm going to make a cost order versus you now cannot buy a house at all. And so I think the reality is that the court will still need to look at, as Rule 28 requires, all of the surrounding circumstances, including the impact on each party and on any children, in order to decide whether to make a cost order and if so, what amount. How are you finding these playing out in practice? I have to say, I find it quite difficult. I, When you can see the costs arguments coming and you can see them coming more frequently now than used to be the case, because people know they may have to argue costs, so they flag up, they use their cross-examination to lay the ground. Are you finding that most judges will as in the old days give their decision and then invite cost submissions or are you finding judges making decisions with a bit of an eye to costs issues and litigation conduct or or sometimes deciding some things but leaving things open and then getting cost submissions in I don't know I'm just it's starting to feel more artificial to me to give a, a final decision and then start almost start all over again on costs which is what's happened in a couple of cases I think from my own experience, I have been encouraging judges to hear some limited costs arguments before giving a final decision so as to try to roll it all up together. When I've been sitting as a recorder, that's the way I've dealt with it, because I don't think you can do that proper cross check unless you know what costs you're likely to make. Or you end up doing it twice. Yeah, and exactly, or you end up doing it twice. Um, and indeed, when you go on to consider whether or not you should give somebody some or all of the capital that would be required in order to discharge their debts that are referable to costs, you are supposed to have an eye to whether or not the court would have made a costs order and in what circumstances, etc. Yeah. So again, you can't really do that exercise properly, I think, unless you deal with it in a rolled up way. Yeah, that's interesting. So if solicitors are preparing a case where they think their client may be applying for costs, what should they do? Should they include it in the statement? I think if you're applying for the costs, what would be really helpful is to start preparing your N260 at an early stage so that it isn't all a rush at the last minute and and extra stress provided to you. Um, I think what needs to happen is for there to be clearly set out within your schedule the costs that are referable to to issues within the case so that there's evidence before the judge about how much was spent on this particular bad point because it's it's probably the quantum that is going to be harder to deal with than arguments about whether or not it was a successful point because by the time the judge comes to consider their final decision they will have formed a view about whether a particular line of attack was reasonable or not And what I think may be trickier is if you haven't got at your fingertips the evidence about how much was spent on that issue. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I I would put in a bit of a plea to just be really careful with the Section 25 statements. There's nothing more dispiriting than wading through paragraphs and paragraphs. And then my solicitor said on the 28th of June 2019, and a lengthy quote from correspondence, it just, it's too much of a distraction. And the chances are you will never need it anyway. What you need are the once you, as you say, once you've made the findings, you know what's happened, you know what was reasonable and what wasn't, and what you need is the breakdown of how it's been spent. What, what's the threshold of reasonableness then in this context? Are we because you're talking about bad points, Laura? I mean, 
you know, cases are littered with that point <laughs> uh, on, on both sides. So what, what, what are we talking about? When, because it isn't cost follow the event, is it? So it, it isn't that you, you know, you, you put forward a position, it goes the other way, therefore you're paying the cost. It's got to be something more than that. Do you, what do you think it is? I think it's less likely to be an area that is extremely discretionary, like the amount of maintenance, Mm. unless you've got wildly opposing positions and one of them is found to be very obviously wrong. Um, I think it's more likely to be something that's quite binary, like should the family home be sold? If you've got plainly from a mathematical reading of a schedule of assets insufficient money for an asset to be uh, retained Um, and the only way it could be retained is if the other party's needs are not met at all or they can't rehouse then I think that the judge is entitled to assume that that person has taken an unreasonable approach in refusing to have it marketed and that that will have prolonged the course of those proceedings. But you've got to link it to the amount spent, haven't you? Depending on the other issues in the case, mm-hmm. um, digging your heels in about selling the house may not actually lead to that much extra cost. It's not evidentially very complex. So I think it's it's important to look at how much the issues cost to run in combination with how good or bad a point it was. And my sense is that the ones that you want to be really careful about are the evidentially heavy ones, things like uh, extent of the matrimonial property Mm -hmm. where there are pre-existing assets and especially things like cohabitation dates, all of those things where you start to get people producing their ancient emails and um, bank statements. Once Once the volume of paper rises, the costs rise also. So I think it almost... Um, almost as important as how good or bad your position is on the point is how much it's costing you and the other side to run it. One of the things I've always been concerned about in relation to trying to work out how good or bad a point is at the end of the proceedings is the elephant in the room being the FDR that nobody can talk about because Mm. I've always been concerned. We've, We've all had cases where you've had an FDR indication Somebody has behaved unreasonably at the FDR, refused to accept the indication, and yet none of that information is before the judge. And inevitably, by the time six months later you're at your final hearing, the financial landscape's completely changed, such that whatever could have been said at the FDR might not be relevant anymore anyway. But that whole feature of the case and the, the way in which that can affect the parties' minds and their willingness to negotiate and everything else, all those subtleties are not before the court. And I think it's a real risk of of unfairness. But then I suppose the answer on the other side to that would be, well, the rules require you to make your open offer within 21 days of of the FDR. Once the landscape is clear, you make your open proposal. And then if it's a reasonable proposal, it ought to have been accepted. And I guess you should be looking at the reasonableness of that proposal dated as at the time it was made. Mm. Yeah, it underlines, doesn't it, the real importance of make, getting those offers in and that change and wherever it is, the rule or the practice direction for how many days it's meant to be after the FDR. Um, that is That really is crucial, isn't it? Another aspect is the um, exploring uh, or being open to um, other methods of dispute resolution. And I, I think I've certainly heard of... Um, so the, the guys in I've heard of it is something called the Surrey Initiative, where people are saying you, you should actually write early on in the proceedings and sort of put the other party on notice that they are invited to take part in other forms of dispute resolution and that they are to send that letter to their client and confirm that they've done so. And if they don't come back for some jolly good reasons, then um, you're sort of going to hold them accountable on costs. Do, do, do the two of you think that that, that's within the spirit of the of the regulations and that that's that that's something that people ought to be doing um, on the whole it's certainly uh, a refusal to mediate has given rise to cost there are quite a lot of civil authorities on that and some of them some of that has trickled over into the family sphere you've got to be careful obviously because there are some cases that will never be suitable for mediation so if you do have a history of domestic abuse even if it's not 
going to be directly relevant in the financial remedy proceedings. Either they shouldn't be mediating or if they are, they should be doing it in a very carefully structured way. But aside from those cases, I don't see why a court wouldn't take into account a very clear offer to mediate coupled with a strong indication that costs will be sought on a refusal. And that's perfectly within the framework of the law. I think there's a, there's a 2020 decision in Justice Mostyn called uh, JB and DB. Is that um, what I'm thinking of? did just that, yeah. um, where there'd been an unreasonable refusal to engage in ADR, and that mm. was treated as litigation misconduct. Um, I think that on its facts, you'd have, you'd have to make sure that the request to participate in ADR, I think, was itself a constructive and conciliatory request. I'm not sure I'd be very happy if I saw a letter that said, you better come to mediation or we're going to buy costs against you, because I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's what you're doing. You're in civil litigation all the time. You see exactly those letters and they're quite formal um but yes i suppose if you want if if actually you genuinely want to give the best chance of settling then yeah tone matters i certainly have when sitting as a recorder in a children case i have made directions that parties are to consider mediation and that they are to write to me in six weeks time and tell me what the upshot of that was with a view to without obliging them to attend mediation gives a strong encouragement and also means that they understand that the court wants to have an update and that we haven't just all forgotten about it and that we would like to keep this under close review. Well, if the um, consultation, if the current consultation goes through broadly in line with the proposals, then there will A, be something pretty close to compulsory mediation and B, possibly the prospect of costs orders um, I guess, in the world somewhere for people who unreasonably don't. Uh, that's, I mean, I assume that's compulsory mediation, but with the with the sort of normal exceptions you would expect. Well, although the, the, what the consultation includes proposals to narrow the exceptions because, um, and not, not the main ones that we all know about, the domestic abuse one, but for example, there's a, an exception, I think, if you live more than 15 miles away from a mediator, but most mediation these days is online. So a, a narrowed down list of MIAM exceptions, I think, is the plan. Interesting. I was looking at those today. Um because we're trying to do a, a response to that consultation from, from resolution. And, and um, Judge, you've said it a couple of times about the, the situation in civil proceedings. I was just trying to, to grapple with the fact that mediation is so different in a family, in a family mm-hmm. law context to, to, to civil mediation. And, and whether that's a good thing or not is, is a whole different conversation, isn't it? But but because there's no no ability of a family law mediator to force through a settlement, and in in civil they can because there is the threat of costs on on both hanging over everybody, which gives the mediator a lot of of power really to direct people to settlement. I I, I was just wondering whether the I was just trying to think out how how that compulsion element actually works through. Mm. So you can compel people to sit in a room, but you certainly can't compel them to to do a deal. No, and the difficulty is that the powers that we have already aren't used, and the reason they're not used, including powers to stay for mediation, and the reason they're not used is that often in family situations, it advantages one party to have delay and disadvantages the other party. So again, unlike small claims where basically everyone's desperate to get shot of it and sorted out and the small claims mediation service is very successful as a result because they do get stayed automatically for I don't know four months or something right at the start and they mostly go off and settle in family cases if you stay something for four months for mediation one side's going to be thinking brilliant and down tools unfortunately it's just the nature of the subject matter of um, of the cases that we have. Although I suppose what you could do is acknowledging that you might be waiting that four months between one hearing and the next hearing, is that you might say, well, rather than simply doing nothing for those four months, we expect you to use the four months to see whether you can avoid the next hearing. Well, that should be what's happening anyway. But yes, it it doesn't as much as it should. I, I don't really know why that is. I don't know why it's so difficult to get people to engage with each other outside the court 
I think so, judicial continuity, if we had the resources, which we mm, don't, <laughs> would be really helpful. Same judge you, in the eye and, yeah. Yeah. Because if, if, if you, like I was trying to do in the case that I did, if you say, well, I, I want to <coughs> know about this when you yeah. come back in front of me, I want to know what you have done and what concrete steps you've actually taken to explore some out of court resolution. Yeah. There's more of an incentive because particularly if your case hasn't been determined yet, I suspect you would want to ensure that you've put your best foot forward and that you've at least paid lip service to some alternative dispute resolution, yes. which yes. might, even though you go along because you're paying lip service, might actually end up having some hidden benefits. Mm. It's got to be the same judge, though, as you say, for that to to ring true. Otherwise, the next judge just may not know the emphasis you've put on it. All right. I think that is everything because we're not going to ask you about appeal costs because, (laughs) yeah, we've just done an episode on it. I was just wondering about flagging up. I'm going to sound really harsh and horrible, but where there are big mistakes made by professionals, lawyers occasionally, but sometimes other agencies, third party costs orders and wasted costs. I'm not I really don't want to sound like some awful judge who um, wants to sort of throw her weight around and order everybody to pay money left right and center but I've on the rare very rare occasions when the sort of reprehensible conduct that is necessary has come to my attention I've been a little surprised at the reluctance of practitioners to bite that bullet and make the application so I just flag it up without wanting to encourage people to make life more difficult than it already is that very occasionally there are situations where Really, it shouldn't be the parties themselves who are bearing the the costs of what has gone wrong. This is one of those moments when the when the video from the podcast should go out, really, rather than the. Can I just um, can I just jump onto that and add that from the the other side of the table, as it were, that the number of cases in the last two years that I have had where we have incurred all the costs and done all the preparation and prepared the beautiful bundle and we've been telephoned by the court at three o'clock or four o'clock and told there's no judge and your case is being Fair enough. including yep. cases where that's happened more than once in the same yeah. for the, to the yep. same family I think there are a lot of people who would consider that the difficulties in processing cases through the court system is also causing well, in those cases, you, you can and should be asking for your costs from HMCTS. Thank you very much for joining us. That's been incredibly informative. And for our listeners, if you like what you've heard, please can you leave us a review?